from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. Did you know that there is an area free of industrial development, roads, or pretty much any other kind of development in northern British Columbia the size of a European country? The Terra Informa team didn't either until we watched the documentary called In the Land of Dreamers. I'm Hannah Cunningham and I'll be your host for the next half hour of discussion about this film. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskwitsiwiskigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials, like Frank Oliver, to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. The area that we're talking about today in northern British Columbia falls within the territory of the Cascadena. The film that we'll be discussing highlights the importance that this land has had for the Indigenous peoples of this area since time immemorial, and why the protection of this land is critical to ensuring that the Cascadena people and this environment continue to thrive in the present and in the future. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land that you are on. This week, I'm joined by some of the Terra Informers to talk about In the Land of Dreamers, which is an episode of a show on CBC Gem called Absolutely Canadian. This episode follows two men, Ryan Dickey, an Indigenous photographer and digital storyteller, and Wayne Sawchuck, a guide, conservationist, and ex-logger. Along with others, Ryan and Wayne tell the story of an area called Musquakachika and its cultural significance. So this is Hannah Cunningham moderating the discussion. <laughs> and I had never heard of the Muskoka before I watched this, um, which I feel like is kind of surprising because I have family in Fort St. John, which is pretty close, but I had no idea that this existed and how big it was. Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, I, the same. I had never heard of the Muskoka before watching this episode i've never really spent any time in that part of the country like that, that sort of northern bc i spent a little bit of time in the yukon so i was like oh yeah like watson lake like that sounds familiar like some of these places i've heard of but no i had never heard of this protected area i'm very alberta bound so thanks liz that was elizabeth dowdell someone who needs no introduction <laughs> this is Sonali patel thanks for having me hannah yeah, I was not familiar with with the uh, Muskokajika. Uh, interior in northern BC is very unknown to me, um, especially 
it's just sort of it's a place where like everything you kind of imagine and hear about is happening in BC is like along the coast and in the south so that part is just a big question mark in my head Cool. Thanks. I'm Sarah Chitsas. So I'm from BC. I'm from Kamloops, which is in the uh, southern interior. And right now I'm in Fort Nelson for some work for my master's. But prior to moving here and kind of looking into the area a bit, I hadn't heard about Muskoka either, which is like more surprising because I'm from BC, I think. <laughs> I would kind of assume that I would know more, but I kind of read briefly about it, but I didn't know the extent of how large it is or any of the history of how they developed the protected areas or anything like that prior to watching this. So it's kind of cool to learn more. Any like first impressions of the video? Like what first grabbed you, I guess, when you watched it? Uh, First impressions watching this film was that this region is absolutely stunning. I mean, it's so beautiful. And that absence of roads that comes up very early that there are no easy routes in or out that you really have to sort of commit to going to this place if you're going to go to it um was really sort of the first I guess striking thing about um watching this this episode for me I think probably the biggest thing that I felt leaving it was I was kind of surprised to hear that it was the like largest stretch of undisturbed land in Canada and then to see it on a map, it's not that big. Um, and I know they compare it land-wise, they show a comparison with, I think, Ireland um, in the film. But when you look at it on a map of BC and you look at it on a map of Canada, it's not an especially big piece of land. And I think part of me was optimistically hoping that there was a more substantial stretch of, um, of what we could call undisturbed land in, in northern and mountainous Canada. But yeah, it was a little disheartening to see um, that scale on that map and sort of compare that with with how beautiful that land looked to, to think about that being such a small part of what a, of, a, of a very large country. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it is a very visually stunning film. And I mean, just in Fort Nelson, even like the geography is so different from anything I've seen in southern BC. It's really beautiful here. So I think it's cool to have a film like this out there because I feel like the northern areas of our provinces are so like mysterious to people from the south because there's, you know, not a whole lot. Like there's some tourism here and a lot of people drive through, it seems, to go to Alaska. But I don't think that many people that I know at least have come to northern BC just to explore or anything like that. Um. I also agree it is a little disheartening at how this is the biggest un- undisturbed landmass that we have but I'm glad that we at least have this I feel like it can be used as um, maybe inspiration for why we should try to keep more lands protected or add protection to existing lands that are like I'm thinking Fairy Creek for example where all the old growth logging is, I feel like, yeah, expanding protected areas could be so, so positive and such a good thing. And maybe this could be an inspiration for that. And then there was one line, I don't know why it stood out to me so much, but I think Wayne Sawchuck was talking about how resource extraction, or like in particular, it seemed like he was referring to logging, but that 
transforms wild landscapes to industrialized landscapes. And I don't know why that like idea of transforming the wild to industrialized was like impactful for me. There's that slogan for tourism BC that's like supernatural British Columbia, right? And I feel like this is what people imagine, you know, because it is so populated with different types of wildlife that are iconic and even some of the discussion about how it's a a sacred space and place and that, you know, there's something about it that needs to be protected. Seeing that it is just such a small area that doesn't have roads into it or resource development into it right now, or, you know, that idea of pipelines or any other kind of corridor running through it, um, bisecting it, creating those disturbances in, in, in like territory on the landscape for, for different animals and different, you know, human experiences too, was really, yeah, that stood out to me a lot. They talk a lot about like the importance of having contiguous land um, that's environmentally safe. And sometimes I, I fear that people don't understand how important it is for like natural areas to be connected and to not be interrupted by things like highways or or rail lines or you know seismic lines so like when people see how much natural area is available on a map that's so misleading because if these pieces don't connect to each other they're not they're not the same sort of habitat that can actually sort of sustain life because creatures don't just stay in one place there's a lot of migratory species um and then the other piece i wanted to talk about that both of you touched on was what I thought was a fairly interesting use of the terminology undisturbed. And I think that, or I question at this point, whether we can still consider any place on earth undisturbed because of things like climate change, because of things like biomagnification and aerosol and water-based pollutants that are so quick to disperse. Um, and Northern BC will, you know, if we see an average global warming of, of two degrees, which it appears we've already blown past, like we're looking at a four to six degree warming in these areas, you know, is it still even fair to call that an undisturbed place? Yeah, I would definitely curious about like the actual ecological changes that have happened in this area, not necessarily because of humans directly, you know, using it for industry, but because of the way that we're terraforming the planet. Ryan and Wayne both talk about how they both had previous careers in resource extraction. I think one was in like oil and gas adjacent industry, and then one was in logging and spoke about the importance that industry has in people's lives, especially in that area. And like, including people who care about the environment, like both of them were obviously very passionate about the environment. And like, I think Ryan said, like his job with his family company in industry was like the thing that was able to set him up and have a good foundation to raise his family. And I kind of assumed like have the foundation to set up, like then pursue his own interests of photography. And I kind of feel like living in Alberta and like Sarah, you live in BC and have been spending some time in Fort Nelson. Like we all see this. This is like a familiar story, I feel like to all of us. So how did that part make you feel? Or did you see any connections to like your own life? Yeah, when I was when I was watching that part, um, just connected a lot back with some of, of the uh, like courses and, and work that I've seen around the idea of resource-based communities, which are, you know, obviously very, not very, but like there are, they do exist in Alberta. Um, 
And yeah, I think that I think one of the biggest challenges with resource-based communities is you've got these places that are located beside such a wealth, not just you know from an environmental and and personal perspective, but recognizably from an economic perspective. And one of the biggest challenges with these economies is that that wealth is captured and, and developed, but it the, those benefits struggle to stay local. And you you see that a little bit in in the video they talk about or they show that sign, Hannah, that you went to earlier, where if I recall correctly, it says something along the lines of um, companies don't have social license to uh, chop down lumber near Fort Nelson and process it elsewhere. Um, and the idea of like value added processing and the employment and benefits that come with that being disconnected from the community, even though that's where the resources were harvested. And that's, I think, kind of consistently been the bane of resource-based communities is they provide these raw resources that are of such value, but they don't really get much of that value back because uh, many of the additions occur elsewhere and those profits don't stay in that community. So I thought it was really interesting when, um, was it Ryan? I didn't I didn't write down anyone's name. But yeah, the idea of like an indigenous owned and managed and um, like family run business was something I was really like excited to hear about and not what I was expecting. I expected like a, you know, big transnational to, to be running that and yeah like like Liz was talking about I think it's really valuable to have opportunities to manage that wealth sustainably and also sort of use that to benefit the local community so they're not as susceptible to these you know very volatile shifts um, because their economy is based around a single resource. Yeah I think that is a just a big point is that, you know, those remote and rural communities don't have to be sort of that hinterland exporting out to somewhere all the time and sort of just surviving on the whims of the market. And it's like volatility that, you know, communities can take some control of the resources around them um, and how they're harvested and how they're used because there are, you know, wealth and benefits that could be going and other benefits, not just wealth, obviously, but that can be going, can be going and staying locally. Yeah. Uh, those are good points. <laughs> I can give a little bit of context on the local situation from what I've learned here. So Fort Nelson is not actually uh, its own municipality. It's part of the Northern Rockies Regional Municipality or NRRM. And that municipality encompasses kind of 10% of BC's landmass all up in, in the Northeastern corner. So it's a like big municipality, it seems like Fort Nelson is the largest hub kind of in it. That's where the municipal buildings are located. And then it seems like a lot of the rest of the area is made up of more smaller or more rural type communities. At least that's my understanding. But I know that there was an economic boom tied to oil and gas in the area between 2009 and 2014. And then there was kind of a bust in that cycle in 2014. And they faced a lot of economic downturn and there's been an economic recession in the area for, it kind of seems like since then, but it seems like there still is kind of a focus, at least from the like government's website on investment potential from oil and gas and looking into liquid natural gas in particular. So kind of the main three industries here are tourism, forestry, and oil and gas. So it is a very resource dependent region. Something I've been reflecting a lot in my time here and something I've been thinking a lot about in the context of this film is just how nuanced it is. Like 
I think coming from Vancouver and, you know, bigger cities, especially in BC where we're mostly hydropowered, um, I think it's really easy to have this attitude of like, oh, you know, oil and gas stuck in the past, like people who don't care about the environment are in these extractive industries. And I think it's really easy to forget that engaging in those industries has allowed people to really provide for their families and to sustain themselves for decades and for generations. And that it's not as easy as just suddenly saying, nope, I'm not going to work for that industry anymore. Like this is part of a really big conversation about, well, in, in my focus for my research and stuff, it's mostly on, on energy transitions, but I think even bigger than that on, on transitioning away from really extractive and exploitative resource um, reliance for the economy. So yeah, I feel a lot of empathy for the people who've built their livelihoods in these industries. And now there has been an economic downturn and I think it must be really challenging. Like, I don't know, I don't know how people are progressing and there's such an emotional connection, it seems, to oil and gas as well. I think it's it's so difficult and it's so complicated. Yeah. Now, that definitely brought up a point for me, Sarah, that coming from Alberta, so much of the Alberta identity is connected to our resource extraction history as like a as a province. And I found... I don't know. I found that really standing out for me because there was a point, I don't think it was one of the leads, but they were talking about how like, I don't know that they're like their history, their history is in this land. So their culture is in this land and their identity is in this land. And I, when I heard that, I was like, mm, yeah, like the Alberta oil identity uh, is here in this land in Alberta. But the, you know, you, there are ways to like flex and, and change. And that's what seems to be another kind of key, maybe like thread is like how to how to change and how to reconcile those two kind of identities. Like, you know, that that your history might be in the land, but like what is that history and what is that culture? And it can sort of change. There's a that was sort of an opening quote that I really liked that was sort of bookended by a closing quote about the need to be resilient and adapt with the land because it is changing. So I really thought those tied together in a in an interesting way with land and identity and how, you know, is climate change changing land, how we've changed land as a, as a species on a, a large scale. And so what is our identity and what is our history and what is our culture now in the land in like different places as not just... Um, you know, uh, Fort Nelson, BC sort of struggles with this story, but as a lot of, I think, communities struggle with, do we, how do we move away from some of these extractive histories and cultures that define us now and transition to something else um, and think and imagine our, our futures and what impact we'll have on the land for the long term? I, yeah, I thought those really dovetailed interestingly in a, in a way, speaking to identity and land that I thought was really cool. I think it's unfair. I think in kind of mainstream environmentalism that I see in cities like Vancouver, I feel like there is this really unfair assumption that people working in resource extraction or resource development industry um, don't care about the environment or that they're anti-environment. And I think that's missing out on the fact that people who are working in those industries are relying on the land and they're relying on natural resources for their own livelihoods. I think it's 
yeah, more complicated than we often paint in mainstream environmentalism. And I think that's something that needs to change. Yeah, that's a really great point. There's, it's unproductive to vilify people who are working in extractive industries. The overall goal is to look at a way to balance the issues that are often needed and necessary and provide a lot of value with things like conservation and having protected areas sort of necessitates the idea of having areas that are available for um, for industry. And I mean, it's no easy task, but the, the challenge is really to figure out how to do that sustainably and how to maximize the value that we're capturing from um, a piece of land. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CGSR 88.5 FM. This week, we're discussing In the Land of Dreamers, which is an episode of the CBC Gem show, Absolutely Canadian. Let's get back into it. Favorite scenes. There were so many. I know it's probably hard. I think that one of mine was there was a scene where like I think Ryan and Wayne were riding up over a like mountaintop or hill or something and you could see just in the back this like huge like vast landscape of mountains and they looked so small and um, I think that like captured like the size of the area so well and I was like oh my god this is insane (laughs) um yeah, there's a couple other ones, but uh, yeah. Liz, favorite scene? Yeah, that scene was really good. And I think, and I had moments of that because I had climbed a mountain for the first time this year and not like a big mountain, but just like a grassy mountain like that, a ridge, I guess. <laughs> but I was pretty impressed when I looked out and I was like, wow, this was in, you know, the Canadian Rockies, but not the the Northern part. Um more near like the I guess central southern Rockies and yeah just looking out on them was just it's phenomenal to think about how large this landscape is so that I really like that one too and then a little bit after it there's sort of a scene when they're walking the horses on a like a like a horse trail and talking about um shoot I didn't write it down I forget the name of the trail but uh there's this trail that you know has been used for thousands and thousands of years and so even though when you looked out across that ridge, you didn't see roads, you didn't see uh, runways, you didn't see any kind of, you know, transportation infrastructure like that, that, yeah, that this whole land is covered in a, a spider work of trails or like a spider web of trails. Um, and that, that if you know what you're looking for, you will find signs of of people being here and living here and sort of thriving in that area for, for thousands of years. And I just thought that was so cool. Cause if you ever go hiking and you like, you lose the trail and you find the trail and you, you know, I've been doing a lot of that this summer too. So, um, or just sort of recently in the last few years of my life. So that was a really favorite scene too, to just think like, wow, this is really cool. You can, you know, just your footsteps will be on the land forever, but that can also be like all the sort of remains you leave. Yeah. I'll talk about, um, my favorite scene, which is not a visual, it's a line that someone says. And the necessary context for it is it talks about the, the Deshin, I think it's pronounced, which are markers of sacred land that identify you know, these traditional areas. Um, and first of all, I thought that concept was so interesting and it related or I connected a lot with 
in sort of, I guess, Western culture and colonial culture, um, what we consider to be sort of sacred areas or heritage areas are all anthropogenic. They're all man-made. They're things like architecture, like this museum, this church, um, this wall, they're ancient and they have sacred value because they are um, so old. And I often feel like, you know, people come to Canada and they talk about how there's like a lack of built history here. Um, but the idea of having like these sacred lands, these things that have ex that pre-exist any human structure. Um, and I think a lot of people or potentially a lot of people don't really see that as something that is like sacred and traditional and something that has a heritage value to it. You know, that that is our our physical history. It's these stretches of, of incredible land in Canada. And so the comment that I, I would consider to be my favorite scene is um, one of one of the characters talks about how as part of traditional management, one of the rules was you don't hunt within the sacred land unless you absolutely need to. And then when you do need to, animals will always be there. And so that it sounded to me almost like like an emergency reserve, but the idea that you know you could have this this entire ecosystem that you sort of treat with this reverence and um, respect, and then as, as a co-benefit, you know it's available for you when you absolutely need it, and it's something that almost seems impossible in the society that I've grown up with of, of colonial, you know, urban Edmonton that seems so antithetical to the idea of having, you know, free ridership issues and, and tragedy of the commons. And, and those sorts of concepts apply that under capitalism, these kinds of resources can't exist. And so it was, it was so refreshing to hear of a way of living on that land that wasn't assumptive that people would be you know, so greedy that they would always be exploiting the land as much as they possibly could. The idea that culturally there was just such a reverence for this place and um, that that traditional management that was done back then, I think is hopefully a thread that will continue when they talk about the importance of Indigenous management in the future. My favorite scene is much less deep than Sonic's, but I just really enjoyed all the scenes where we got to see their expedition. I thought like it's so amazing that they do this every year and all the people seem really kind and warm and nice, which is lovely. Um, I thought it was really cool that they said that they release the horses every night and then corral them back in the morning so that they have free time to, I don't know what horses do at night. Maybe they just like go sleep. I'm not really sure, but it just seemed really cool. And I liked the scene also where there was the gentleman um, taking Ryan Dickey out to Mayfield Lake in a helicopter. And he was talking about how he loves doing this because it's one of the only ways you can access the area is via the air because other than that, it's like riding horses, but it's a very far ways to go. Yeah, I think seeing the camp was really cool at Mayfield Lake. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM 
and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thanks to Sonic, Elizabeth, and Sarah for joining me this week. This episode was produced by Charlotte Thomason. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, tara at cjsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at TaraInforma. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. I was so ready for you to say, in a previous life as a horse, and I was like, wow, revelations about Hannah's <laughs> spiritual belief system. <laughs> in my previous life, I was bonus or whatever that horse's name is. That <laughs> <laughs> horse that's still alive. <laughs> it's a complicated belief system. Okay, Sonic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>